0: Today, we're having uh, uh, Professor Jack Levinson share with us. He is a professor at uh, SMU uh, over in Dallas, and before that, he was up in Seattle Pacific University. He's written dozens of books on the Holy Spirit. He's a professor of Old Testament, and he's just a gem of a person. He's married to Priscilla, who's also a professor, and he'll tell you more about her and their ministry together as he uh, speaks today. So, can we welcome uh, Dr. Jack Levinson? So. Thank you, Brad. Well, it is delightful to be here and uh, almost didn't get here. Two times we tried and COVID had other ideas. And so it's been a few years since Brad and I first talked about the possibility of my coming out here. And I have been really looking forward to it ever since. Um, uh, Fretting and worrying and writing and thinking and cursing. Not really cursing, honestly, not really cursing, but cursing over PowerPoints. And then having to do PowerPoints and Microsoft online and that sort of thing. But we made it. We're here and delighted to be here. And I I also want to extend an invitation to this evening. um, If at all, you can come. This evening, we're going to be dealing with the New Testament and the Holy Spirit on the move in the book of Acts. And then this morning, we're going to be dealing with a passage from the Old Testament, which is kind of near and dear to my heart. And it has to do with a drought. Drought. So I thought you people might appreciate something, a story that has to do with a drought. Okay. So, but I want to say thank you, first of all, to Brad, who has been just a pal over uh, phone calls and emails and texts and who knows what else and Zoom as well with the team. And of course, Alicia. I don't know where Alicia is, but did mounds and mounds, probably uh, well over 100 emails back and forth about getting things arranged. You all have a very fortunate to have the leadership team that you have. It's been pretty remarkable working with them. The only mistake they made is inviting a college professor to speak on a stage like this. So later on, I am actually going to ask you to step out of your cave. And so yesterday morning, um, so I married to Priscilla, who's also a professor at SMU. And She was saying, man, you have really worried about this. You've really fretted this. Well, your anxiety level is so high, and it really was so high. And yesterday, I'm brushing my teeth, and I'm thinking, why am I so anxious? Why am I so worried? And I realized, you're stepping out of the cave you're stepping out. I mean, I'm happy in a classroom. I don't even mind an online classroom. Virtual classrooms are fine with me. I love students, love to hang around with them, be with them. Every one of my classes, you have to bring a snack as part of the class. So we always have lots of food in this one Old Testament class right now. At the end of five of them, we celebrate a Jewish feast, a small group gets together. We had, you know what a sukkah is? You ever heard of a sukkah? a booth, the Jewish feasts of booths. Well, we went into the little cafeteria next to our classroom and they had built a beautiful big thing, a big booth, which was to remind the Israelites that during the, after they came out of Egypt in the Exodus and they wandered in the wilderness, they wandered in booths. So modern Jews nowadays celebrate the feast of booths or in Hebrew, the Sukkot. And so we have lots of food and everything. I'm great at a classroom, but boy, put me on a stage like this with spotlight and people out there and I'm out of my comfort zone, but I still believe God has a message for each of you. So I'm here with you and delighted to be with you because of that. So, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, this whole theme, uh, uh, these this day and then tomorrow. How many of you are uh, juniors and seniors in high school? Hey, OK, so you're going to be stuck with me tomorrow. But tomorrow, I actually have a four-minute video from my students to you. So I I made a I I thought oh they don't need to listen to an old an old guy just gray-haired old guy the whole time. So we're going to start tomorrow morning's assembly at 7:45 in the stupid morning. 7:40 thankfully with the thankfully with the time change and the 2 hours difference it's going to be like 10:45 my time. So I'll be awake what they'll be I don't know. But um we will start with a little 4 minute video that I personally made for you all. So We're talking about the Holy Spirit and the person I want to focus on right now is the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. Because he is such an amazing figure of success and failure. So often when you talk about the Holy Spirit, right? Live the spirit-filled life. Or I even titled this last little book, Seven Secrets of the Spirit-Filled Life, to try to be kind of cool. Academics aren't very cool. I don't try to be savvy. I do know what FOMO is. But you know a lot of the words that the students use, I, I don't even bother trying to know. But so basically, we, we think that the Holy Spirit sometimes, if the Holy Spirit comes into our life or if we're living the Spirit-filled life, we're living a life of constant victory, which of course is not the case. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead us automatically to victory. All our problems do not fade away. The, the mantle of uh, issues that beset us continue. So when you think about the Holy Spirit, don't think that the Holy Spirit is here to take away all your problems, to take away everything that worries you. You'll be 67 like me and still fretting being up on the stage in a church of people you don't know. That's part of life. But also remember the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, right? What was the first thing? The first thing the Holy Spirit does, it descends on him as a dove, Right? And then once the Holy Spirit is in Jesus, having descended on him and as, him as a dove, what does the Holy Spirit do but drive him into the wilderness? And the word used there is ekbalo, as in a ballistic missile, and ek as in exit on the doors. Casting him out into the wilderness, the way Jesus would cast out demons or cast the money chambers, money changers out of the temple. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. That's the very first thing the Spirit does. And it's in the wilderness where, Je- where Jesus gets his purpose in life. It's where Jesus figures out what he wants to do in living into his baptism. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't just whiff away all of our problems and make everything perfect. The Holy Spirit gives us meaning and purpose and vocation in life. And so tonight we're even going to talk about Philip, one of the leaders in the early church who actually had a great ministry to one person in the wilderness, And so I want you to begin to think of the Holy Spirit, not as something that takes away all your problems, but instead that gives you meaning in the midst of all the things that are going on in the world and may even drive you out into the wilderness for a time so you can figure out your relationship with God or be in ministry to other people. And so having gotten to that, we're going to look at this figure of Elijah, who is by no means a perfect figure you will see today. So Elijah was known to be a man of the spirit. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 12, right? Elijah is going to meet the king of the northern tribes. Let me give you a little background here. So. In in Israel, in the year 921 B.C., the kingdom split in two because of taxes. The kingdom, Solomon died, and his son wanted to tax people heavily, so 10 of the tribe 12s said, no, we're not going to have it, and they moved north. Elijah was a prophet among those tribes who had split because they didn't want to pay a lot in taxes. And so he has a relationship with the king, Ahab, and the queen, Jezebel. They're the king and the queen in Israel in the north at this particular time. And there is a three years long drought. And so Elijah says to another prophet whose name is Obadiah, he says, go tell King Ahab I want to talk to him. And listen to what Obadiah says. No, as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord is going to carry you away. And you know what Ahab is going to do? Because you're not there, he's going to kill me. So I'm not going to tell Ahab that you're going to meet him. That's how much Elijah was known to be a man of the spirit. That Obadiah, his prophetic friend, said, I'm not going to talk to Ahab because the spirit will whisk you away. Or just as he's about to die, Elijah has a, has a disciple named Elisha, right? Elisha, recognizing the spirit in Elijah, says this, um, Elijah asks, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elijah was known to be a man of the spirit, but he was a man of the spirit who was deeply flawed. Like you and like me. Deeply flawed and still a person of the spirit. So we are going to look at Elijah this morning and we're going to look at Elijah on two different mountains, right? We're going to look at Elijah on Mount Carmel. This is in the far north of Israel. And then we're going to look at Elijah on Mount Sinai, way far in the south, actually in the southern kingdom known as Judah. Don't worry about the names. They're always confusing. Mount Carmel in the north Mount Sinai in the south. So let's look at the first one here, Mount Carmel in the north, okay? So God tells Elijah that a years-long drought is going to end. So Elijah meets King Ahab on his own, Obadiah won't tell him, and summons the 450 prophets of Baal To the mountain at Caramel. Now it's going to be an amazing confrontation between Elijah, the single prophet of God, and the 450 prophets of Baal. And when Ahab sees Elijah for the first time after this long drought, Ahab says to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? That word troubler really means destroyer. And you know what a drought can do. It doesn't just annoy or trouble, it destroys. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah answered, I have not destroyed Israel, but you have Ahab and your father's house because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, followed the Baals. Now therefore have all Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, Those are the female prophets. Baal prophets male, female prophets Asherah. Do the math, 850 prophets against one Elijah. And they're the ones who eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel pays them so that they'll prophesy good things about her. You're a wonderful queen, do whatever you wanna do. Okay, so it's gonna be a remarkable confrontation between them. And so what happens next is that Ahab sent to What oh, why do I have this in here? Excuse me. <laughs> you should see me at class. I can never find my notes. They're always at different tables, uh, always lost. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets of Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, how long will, to the Israelites, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. So Elijah said to the people, "Ah, I even I only am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets numbered 450. So then it gives directions. The Baal prophets, they should have their bull and their altar and get everything ready for a sacrifice. And I'm going to have my bull and altar and get ready for a sacrifice over here. So they got two altars, Baal, Yahweh, Bull on both of them, okay? So the prophets of Baal took the bull that was given them. They prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. Now look at this. I circled limping here and I circled limping there. Same Hebrew word. Okay. What's being said about the Israelites by using the same word of the Israelites as are being used of the prophets of Baal? What are the prophets of Baal doing? They're dancing, and they're limping, and they're cutting themselves, and they're bleeding all day trying to get Baal to say something. And, and actually, Elijah says something very funny. funny he said, he kind of wandering? Is he going? Is he meditating? And a lot of people think, yeah, is he on the toilet? So is Baal on the toilet? Is that why Baal's not answering? Because they're gashing themselves, waiting for Baal to answer. Yeah, see, the high school students, they like that kind of thing. Yeah, see that? Come on, come on, older people. You should be laughing. It's scatter you. you. Do you ever use the word eschatology? Well, this is scatology, right? Uh, you know, scat jokes. So, what's, what he's saying here is that you Israelites look as stupid and silly and ineffective as the prophets of Baal, because you can't decide which God, which one you're going to worship. There is something in it for us in this, isn't there? We love, even though we say we love God, and we say we we're for God and we say we're with God, we love to, using a casino term, hedge our bets, don't we? In the spiritual world, we love to be with God, but it's a lot harder to trust the material world to God. It's much harder to work hard and entrust our grades to God. It's much harder to entrust our mortgages to God. It's much harder to to entrust our cars to God our finances to God, our home life to God, our families to God, our parenting to God, our friends to God. You get the point. It's really easy to make a division in life between spiritual and material and give God all God wants in the spiritual. But then we sort of limp and dance and hop and mope and doubt when it comes to giving the whole of our life to God. And so what Elijah is saying to the Israelites is, as long as you're hedging your bets, as long as you're not sure, as long as you're unwilling to commit, you look stupid like the prophets of Baal. Now I know, honestly, truly, I know it has been a very hard several years I mean I look at the high school students they spent middle school in a pandemic the students who are now ours missed all sorts of things in high school and now they're at Southern Methodist University and they didn't have a lot of the things that normally you would have so I'm not saying there's something wrong with you But I am saying there's always a way to give a fuller amount of ourselves to God, to give our world to God, our bodies to God, our hopes to God, our dreams to God, and not limp around trying to say, I'll give God this, but I won't give God that. This is okay. Not so sure about that. And so... I think it's really important as we read this text to think, if people had to characterize me, would I look like the prophets of Baal? Not quite sure I'm all in. Or would I look like someone who's all in like Elijah? Okay. So that's the story of the Israelites hedging their bets on God. Elijah, however, on Mount Carmel, he's all in. They're hedging, they're dancing, they're limping, they're wondering, but Elijah is all in. So, in this next slide, you have what Elijah does while they're limping around like this. Look what Elijah is doing. He said to all the people, Come closer to me. So they come closer. And the first thing he did, he repaired the altar. And then he took 12 stones and according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, so 12 stones Elijah goes out and gets, he builds an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench around the altar large enough to contain two measures of seed. I have no idea what two measures of seed is. It's probably quite a bit because it's going to hold a lot of water. And then after he did that, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. That is a lot that Elijah is doing. The Israelites are kind of oh, not sure about God or Baal or God or Baal. And over here, the prophets of Baal, they're all dashing themselves, looking like a bunch of idiots. And over here, Elijah is moving, a man of the spirit, moving with purpose. Right? Repairing, taking 12 stones building an altar, making a trench, cutting the bull, literally cutting the bull and laid it on the wood. And then maybe at a little tired, he finally tells other people to do something. He says, fill four jars with the water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Ah, then he said, "Ah, do it a second time. Remember it's a drought. And they did it a second time. And again, he said, pour the water into the trench on the on the altar a third time. And they did it a third time so that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Of course, this is an act of faith in a time of drought to use the water this way. I took a shower this morning and I thought, do they have enough water out here? Should I be doing that? I actually took a bath last night. I thought, should I be running the water out here? Do they actually have water? I thought they didn't have water out here. And so it's a real act of faith for him after a three-year drought to fill it with so much water that the trench fills with water as well. So you get the image, and what God does is respond to Elijah by a fire comes down from heaven and consumes this sopping wet bull and burns it up. Yay, Elijah! He did it as, as the uh, Carter, the you know, the, we won the World Series in Dallas, right? And I don't like the t-shirt. I'm going to be fully, fully on with him. Carter shows up, and he has a t-shirt that says, Jesus won, I don't know. I don't know what the people in Arizona think about that. You know, but the point is, Elijah won. This was a debate. No debate. And so after he won, he just slaughtered the 450 prophets of Baal. Because he won. Trophy was his. And so what does he do next? The king told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel, the queen, sent a messenger to Elijah. She's very, way too, she doesn't have to talk to him directly. Sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. I give you 24 hours, Elijah, and then you're gone. So Elijah, being the powerful prophet, the purpose-filled prophet, the spirit-filled prophet that he was, ran away. He ran all the way down, miles and miles and miles, down to Beersheba, way south of Jerusalem, en route to Mount Sinai. You see, spirit-filled isn't perfect. Spirit-filled isn't fearless. Spirit-filled doesn't mean it's all going to work out and you're going to be a person of perfection. Spirit-filled means sometimes you're going to get it right and sometimes you're going to screw up royally. And in these two chapters of the Old Testament, you get both head-on. Man, he had it all right on Mount Carmel. But when he gets to Mount Sinai, scared, frightened, little boy, Everything falls apart for him. So being spirit-filled is not being perfect. Okay, he gets to Mount Sinai, right? Why Mount Sinai? Well, that should be a pretty easy question to answer if I gave you on the test. Why did Elijah go to Mount Sinai? Because that's where Moses, centuries before, had gotten the Ten Commandments right? Why not go to Mount Sinai and be like Moses? Okay. So what is Elijah up to when he runs away from Queen Jezebel, cowering, runs all the way down to the Southern kingdom and beyond into the South, into the wilderness, down to Mount Sinai. We know what he's doing. He's retreating to the safety of the past, right? What happens when we're scared? what do we do? We retreat. We go back to the familiar. We go back to what we're comfortable with. Right? And that's exactly what he does. Frightened to death by Jezebel, who pledges he'll die within the next 24 hours. He travels 40 days from Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai. And the amazing thing is, I mean, this is like totally amazing. It looks like God's not bothered. It looks like, God's okay with this, because I want you to know what, in fact, God says to him. God says to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The Lord is about to pass by. And then, of course, there's a great wind, and there's an earthquake, and there's a fire. So the Lord is passing by. And it sounds like this is going to be an amazing thing for Elijah, in part because this word "pass by is a word that's used three times in one chapter of the book of Exodus about Moses. So Elijah has gone back to Sinai to try to go back to where Moses got the Ten Commandments. And in fact, God says, get out on the mountain, I'm about to pass by. But, okay, are we on the next slide now? God says, go out, I'm going to pass by. And notice this, God had promised to Moses three times that God would pass by. I will make all my goodness pass by you, God had said to Moses hundreds of years earlier. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cave or cleft of a rock, just what Elijah wanted, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So God promises to pass by exactly the same way God had passed by Moses. So even though he's run away, scared As much as you could be scared down to Mount Sinai, God is going to honor him nonetheless by passing by the way God had already passed by Moses. It's truly amazing. What is God promising here? Elijah has retreated to the past And it looks very much like God is going to let him stay there in his happy little man cave. But that's not, in fact, what happens. God promises to pass by Elijah, and God is about, as God did with Moses, to pass by, which is what Elijah wants, but it doesn't happen. God doesn't pass by Elijah. Because Elijah stays in the cave. He doesn't go out. Notice what it says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. So what does the prophet who built that altar and everything do? Does he go out? No, he remains back and The whole ordeal, the wind, the earthquake, the fire, the storm leads to dead silence. Dead silence. Compare this with Moses hundreds of years earlier. Elijah wants to be that Moses, so he retreats there. Remember Moses up to get the Ten Commandments and there's earthquake and there's wind And there's fire. Anybody know what happens after the fire? The sound, the blast of a trumpet when Moses is on there. Here's what Exodus 19 says. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire while the whole mountain shook violently. Earthquake, wind, fire. As the blast of the trumpet... The wind blew, grew louder and louder. Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. That is what Elijah wants by retreating to the past. Show me that ancient glory. Give that to me. Let me be another Moses. But instead, he can't get out of the cave to see it all pass by. It goes. There's earthquake. There's wind. There's fire but there's no one to see it because Elijah stayed in the safety of the cave. Now I want you to notice something really profound here. It says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. And then you have all this stuff happening, which is the glory of the Lord passing by. And it came about that when Elijah heard it, Heard it when it was over, when he heard the sound of nothing, when he knew it was safe, when he knew he could be out there and there'd be no wind to push against him, there'd be no earthquake under his feet, there'd be no fire to singe him like that That first Pentecost of the Christian. And when, that, when he heard that there was no more stuff going on, then he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, and stood at the entrance of the cave. What had God told him to do? Go out and stand on the mountain. And what did he do? He stood at the entrance of the cave. So here's what we got. Little break. Elijah had come to Mount Sinai to retreat to the past. God looks like it's okay. Okay. As in the days of Moses, there's wind, earthquake, and fire on Mount Sinai, but Elijah was absent and still in the cave. Therefore, God wasn't in the wind, God wasn't in the quake, God wasn't in the fire. And all that Elijah heard was silence, lots of safety, lots of security, lots of silence. This is not, as the King James Version translates, the still small voice of God. This is not the Holy Spirit prompting Elijah. This is the sound of nothing, the eerie silence after a storm. And all because Elijah stayed in the cave while the glory of God passed by. But maybe, okay, let's, let's give him a break, right? I've been pretty hard on Elijah. Let's pretend that maybe Elijah just had something to learn from all of this. So let's look at this again here. What you have here is he gets to Sinai and God will ask him a question. Then you have the earthquake, wind, fire, and silence. And then God's going to ask him a question. So let's work through this. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord. We know that. He was very zealous on Mount Carmel, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. Yes, we know that. They were limping between two opinions, remember? They threw down your altars and they killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life to take it away. And then God passes by. And after God passes by, Elijah hears a voice asking him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. What did Elijah learn from all this? Zilch. Nothing. God's glory passed by. And he remained unchanged because he loved his cave. We don't necessarily learn from our mistakes. Elijah did not. And he he missed all of God's glory. So... I have a question for you. And it's on the little piece of paper you were handed in, where it says, everyone has a next step. I want you be, to be thinking about what your next step is. What keeps you in a cave? What keeps you in the cave? And what could your next step be to come out of the cave to watch the glory of God pass by? Now, I know that's a very hard question. So I want to give you two examples from our own lives. I gave you one. Sitting on and standing on the stage for me is coming out of my cave. Okay, that's one. But I wanna give you another one by way of introduction to a man by the name of Willie, a faculty member at Southern Methodist University. Willie is not a Christian, but he has a big heart for the homeless. He used to run a big advertising agency and now he teaches that. And one thing he does is throughout North America, he does exhibits of signs from the homeless. He tries to give them names and faces and he collects their signs recently at an exhibit about a month ago he also brought in the photography of a young woman who takes photographs of the homeless and then records their story and these are all in that exhibit each one of those has a story for instance this woman said I I really can't see my children until I clean up I just got to be cleaner and you can look at her fingernails and you can look at her life now This young woman, the photographer, Leah, she's about 23. And I said, why do you do this? Why do you take pictures of the homeless? And she said, well, my mother grew up in Calcutta, India, and she was beaten and bruised, and she was raised in Mother Teresa's orphanage. And then at 17, she was allowed to move to Toronto, where I take these pictures. If it weren't for Mother Teresa, I wouldn't be here. And so she takes these incredible photos of uh, the homeless. Now... Uh, I asked Willie, well, how do you get all these signs, <laughs> Willie? What they, they just give them to me. He said, no, no, I buy them. I buy them for 10 bucks, 20 bucks. I offer to buy these signs. And so, about a month ago, I, there was a homeless guy on the road. And so, I gave him some food, like you know, I, you know, I like to do, bought him some pizza or something. And then afterwards, I thought, man, what would Willie do? And um, I went back and I said to the guy, can I? Buy your sign. I found 10 bucks in my wallet and I found his sign. It was really kind of uncomfortable to go up to the guy and say, Can I buy your sign? Much more comfortable to stay in my own little world. And I bought his sign. And you know what the guy says to me afterwards? As I'm walking away, I had an appointment. He goes, You gave me an opportunity. I have no idea what that means. But I tell you, that was the best $10 I have spent in my entire life, to step out of the cave of my comfort and to do something that just I would never have normally done. Now I want to tell you something a little more complicated than that, something else uh, Priscilla and I have done to step out of the cave About two and a half years ago, two months before my 65th birthday, tell people I turned 65 in a dorm, Priscilla and I decided to become faculty in residence in what's called Bowes Commons. It's one of the 11 or 12 dorms on the Southern Methodist University campus. And each dorm has a small apartment where the faculty member can live with the students. There I am in front of Bowes Hall. Here I am with Mira, one of our first year students who happened to be walking by, was willing to get photographed with her. Now, it is really a difficult place to live sometimes. The very first morning at 5.15 a.m., if any of you have seen my cousin Vinny, the scene where he's in the motel and the, the siren goes off, 5.15, 5.13, actually, the very first morning, I, uh, we're sleeping soundly, and 30 feet from our window, the garbage truck beeps backing up, and... It takes four dumpsters in a row, it puts them up about 25 feet and empties them into an empty truck. Once, twice, three times, four times. It took me six months to get that stopped, and it still happens. It's not the most comfortable place to live. And then, of course, on top of that, at 2 in the morning, there's a whole eco-culture of students. So they'll often be bouncing and pounding. Uh, Not that there's ever any underage drinking on college campuses, but these 18 and 19-year-olds sometimes come in in the middle of the night rather more enthusiastic than they should, and they wake us up. All sorts of things could have kept us out of becoming faculty and residents. And you know what would have happened? we wouldn't have seen God's glory pass by. You know, we would have been happy in our little townhome in the trendy area of town in Lower Greenville with our little gas fireplace and Trader Joe's within three blocks. And it would have been great. Instead, we moved into this apartment and we get to see the glory of God pass by. I'll give you a few examples. Um, Right now, this Tuesday night, so these these months in... um, in the autumn, we, we're doing a thing called Ancient Poems and Modern Anxieties. And it's built, I don't know, I, you probably can't see it. I don't know if I'm on the screen. I don't know if you can see it. I actually brought in some of our posters for this, but I doubt you can see it. Ancient Poems, we put these posters all over. So Ancient Poems and Modern Anxieties. And we, it's built, you can't probably read it, it's built for people of faith no faith, and any faith. So in our apartment on Tuesday nights, we gathered Protestants, Catholics, agnostics, atheists, Jews, Sikhs, Buddhists, Hindus. I mean, sometimes none of them is there, sometimes all of them. You, know who's, you never know who's coming on a college campus. And you know what we do? We start with a psalm. The first week was, uh, what makes you feel safe? And that was Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The next time was Halloween, so we did uh, a Psalm 77 and what haunts you in the night? What keeps you awake at night? What anxieties? This coming Tuesday, we're starting with Psalm 128 and we're asking them, what's it take to be happy? And you know what happens? We give them something to drink. We have a little uh, cappuccino machine, which we can give them lattes in. And then we give them something warm to eat. And then they settle down and we read through the Psalm. Again, not all Christian by any means. We read through the Psalm and we let that Psalm, God's word prompt in them a conversation. Last week, um, a first year student uh, wrote this revision of Psalm 23. The Lord was my shepherd, though I've lost the flock. He beckons me through blackened glass. The words of, I can't even read it. Uh, Oh, the words obfuscated through something cheer. He wants to restore my soul, yet I cannot find the right paths to follow for his name's sake. And I cannot find the right paths for him. I get to see that because we stepped out of the cave. I get to hear students say things like that. And then there's another student who looks like he's got his total act together. And out of the blue, a month ago, he wrote to me and said, can we get together and talk about religion? And I said, sure. So we had dinner and he described his life. His mother was an addict and a repeat felon. His father left him. And he's interested in Christianity. So we sat and talked. And I bought him C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. And we're going to meet this week or next and talk about it. All because we stepped out of this cave and moved into the dorm. We get to see God's glory pass by. And it's amazing that we do. So here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you, what's keeping you in your cave? And what's the next step for you? Not to the entrance of the cave with the mantle wrapped around your face, but on the mountain, right on the mountain with your mantle off, feeling that fresh wind of God, feeling the burn of God's fire, feeling the quake of God under your feet, I want you to think of one thing you can walk away and do. Because you want to be like Elijah on Mount Carmel, active and energetic and purpose-filled. You don't want to be like Elijah, who's stayed back in the cleft of the rock, in the cave, and as the glory passed by, missed it altogether. Take your step. It's yours. You know what it is. You know what's keeping you in there. You know what to move out to. And what you can move out to is the amazing world of the glory of God passing by. Amen. Good word. Thank you so much.